I may be a white boy, but I'm not stupid. This is the Lars Larson Show. Somebody at the White House has been smoking the devil's lettuce. Honestly, provocative talk radio. More than half the women in my cabinet, more than more than half the people in my cabinet, more than half the women in my administration are women. Lars. Our beloved Lars. republic is in the hands of madmen. This is a dark day. No, here's your host. Almost lost my wife, my 67 Corvette, and my cat. Lars Larson. You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you. You know, there are some new reports out there, and I kind of expect that once you see this come out, Pew Research does some research, and we cite it from time to time. Uh, I think they may tilt a little bit to the left, but they've come out and said, gee, gun deaths among American children have risen 50% in the last two years. That's the headline. And anytime there are numbers like that, especially when it comes to guns and crime, I turn to my friend, Dr. John Lott, who's president of the Crime Prevention Research Center. I serve on the board of the organization, uncompensated, by the way. Uh, John's the author, among other books, of More Guns, Less Crime. John, welcome back to the program. Is that an accurate number coming out of Pew Research? Right. I mean, the totals are accurate. Uh, but, you, you know, over that period of time, uh, you've seen an increase in total homicides, uh, not just uh, not just for, for guns. And uh, it's been overwhelmingly driven by increases in homicides among blacks. Uh, so you are having a lot of Blacks in urban areas uh, are seeing increases in homicide rates. I mean, there have been increases in suicides and there have been increases in accidental deaths, but it's primarily been homicides among blacks. And look, I don't think that this is any big surprise to people. Uh, In 2020 and 2021, we saw increases in murder rates that were occurring, uh, and we know from other things that was primarily occurring in uh, in major urban areas, which are heavily minority. The other, the only question I had about the stats, John, uh, is whether or not sometimes you and I have talked about the games they play with definitions. When you, when most of us say children, we mean people under the age of eighteen. And yet, I've seen some gun stats that depend on extending that definition to say nineteen or twenty or even 21 or 22, because they'll define all of those as children. Did Pew Research play any of those games? Uh, no, I mean, well, they use under 18. Uh, Good. You know, the public health people are the ones that you're talking about that will use it under 20 or even sometimes even higher amounts than that. Uh, you know, and so, uh, you know, it's uh, it's they're not... They're not playing a game in that sense, no. Okay. And and is there something in the stats that would suggest a way that we can start to curb that problem? I mean, I've got my own ideas, but I'd like your take on it as well. Well, that's one reason why I was breaking out, looking at homicides and the different categories and by race. Um, you know, we've had an increase in violent crime during the pandemic. But, you know, as you and I have talked about many times, it's pretty obvious, at least to me and you, I think, how to deal with this. And that is, if you go and you have district attorneys that aren't willing to prosecute violent criminals, if you have liberal judges uh, who are releasing half or even two-thirds of the inmates uh, from jails uh, in urban areas, if you have 
cuts in police budgets in those areas? Uh, is it really surprising that you're going to have the type of problem that, that we see here? Not at all. And in fact, you know, it suggests the solution. Put more cops on the street, have them arrest more criminals who actually commit crimes, have the crimes actually prosecuted, take those prosecuted and lock them up for the longest sentence you possibly can, especially if it's violent. John, I think the answer is right there. And I appreciate your time. That's Dr. John Lott, the president of the Crime Prevention Research Center, the author most recently of More Guns and Less Crime. And we always promise to go to naysayers first. Let me start with Harold, who's a naysayer. Harold, uh, thanks for the call from Georgia. What do you and I disagree about today? Well, we agree about 99% of the time. Uh, Good. Thank taking my call. Yeah, right. no, I, I, I think this is one situation where I, I think, uh, you know, the the whole idea of pushing non-competes and kind of getting out, out of the uh, uh, the works is, is, to me, in my field as a physician, uh, actually a good thing. And I, I say that because, They've got us by the short hairs. Nationwide, the physicians in general can't afford to open up their own private practice. There's no way you can uh, you can do it. I don't know if that's by design from the government standpoint, but it's almost impossible coming out well, and, and what stands in the help me understand what stands in the way of you awesome. or maybe a couple of doctors going out and hanging out your own shingle. Well, so in my field, I'm, I'm a very specialized uh, subspecialist. And, you know, in my attempt that I got into 19 years uh, after leaving my home to go off to school and do everything else, came back home, practice, and, you know, because I had a non-compete and COVID and there wasn't enough volume for what I did, I got the axe and I had to uproot my family for, you know, move several hundred miles away. Um, and, you know, it ultimately ended up being a phenomenal thing. And, again, I, I believe everything happens for a reason, but um, it's one of those things that, it makes you wonder. And recently here um, in Georgia, there was a uh, you know, primary care physician that, that we know and, and the community loved it and had at odds with um, big corporate medicine. And, um, you know, they, uh, because they're not compete, they're going to have to operate their family too. And uh, Okay, but that means when it, they fired you, they said, we're firing you, Harold, and you can't go to work anywhere else as a doctor <clears throat> within, within what distance? Some giant uh, distance? I think 100 miles. 100 miles. 100 miles. So you'd have had to move your family or you'd have had to com commute. Was there a reason? Was there something they were protecting? Because they might have thought, we're going to make Harold the big star in his subspecialty. Everybody in town or everybody in this area is going to come to him and he's going to be at our place and we can't have him take that down the road. Is that what they were protecting? Well, I, I think it, it is volume. I mean, it's it, because of the um, large physician groups these days, you have very big hospital corporations. And again, I, I love my current one I'm at, so I'm not going to mention any names or anything, but um, the, the days of private practice are over um, uh, for the most part. Uh, if you look at the stats from like early 2000s uh, to now, uh, it's, it's changed about from 90% private practice in the surgery subspecialty to uh, uh, about 90% hospital owned. Um, yeah. And, uh, well, you know, that's, it's not good for patients because you want competition. I believe yeah, you, know, yeah, you, you always do. want the cheapest price for patients, and, and competition works great. And you know, we as physicians are not in positions to to, to argue that a uh, non-compete in, in your in your. Um, it's kind of like well, you're you're lucky to get a contract. Um, so I, it is one of those things that it is. I, I can see for the vast majority of it, there's no question um, that 
it's a sign of respect from an employer said, listen, we've taught this guy something. He needs to, <laughs> we want to keep him around. We'll pay him more. But in the great field, I mean, we're taking care of patients. Stuff we learned, we didn't well, learn. And may, maybe at the front end of the process, you say, hey, I'm fine to sign a non-compete. I'm not just going to walk my talents down the street. But if you decide to let me go because I, you know, not because I'm being obnoxious, not for cause, but you decide to let me go, you got to let me go earn a living. And, and maybe say, we'll write right. that into it, and then I'll sign it. And you, you got to negotiate while you got the chance. Doctor, thank you very much. I appreciate the call from Georgia. You're listening to The Lars Larson Show. You're listening to the best of The Lars Larson Show. Solid advice from Senator John Kennedy. Look, if you hate cops just because of cops, the next time you get in trouble, call a crackhead. This is the Lars Larson Show. You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you. Rick Rich Richmond joins me now, who's an attorney and the author of a brand new book called And None Shall Make Them Afraid, Eight Stories of the Modern State of Israel. Uh, Mr. Richmond, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. I'm glad to do it, and I have to admit, I always disclose to my audience my biases uh, one way or another. I've been to Israel five different times. I'm a Protestant Christian, and I love the state of Israel, second only to my own country. So if that makes me biased in favor of the state of Israel, so be it. At least I've disclosed it to my audience, and they know where I'm coming from. But you've told the story of how Zionism, as you describe it, supported by Americanism, created a modern miracle. Do you want to talk about that for just a moment, if you would, please? Sure. Americanism uh, is, is actually a civil religion that has been present in America from its beginning. It's a religion of freedom and democracy. And Zionism was the movement to establish a free and democratic Jewish state. And Americanism and Zionism allied together were one of the great successes of the 20th century. The other isms, communism, fascism, national socialism, anti-Semitism, literally murdered millions. But working together, Americanism and Zionism created a modern miracle, and it's one of the great stories of the 20th century. And that's a story I'm trying to tell in my book through the lives of eight uh, important people who made it happen between 1895 all the way up to 2015 and beyond to the present. And you really have the names in there, Herzl, Weizmann, uh, Jabotinsky, uh, Abba Iban, uh, Louis Brandeis, uh, Golda Meir, Ben Hecht, and Ron Dermer. Those, those, those are huge figures. How do you fit all that into one book? Well, you, you fit it into one book by telling the story, not at 30,000 feet with great political, diplomatic, military movements, but in their individual lives and what they did, how they came to Zionism, what they sacrificed, what they committed themselves to. And when you take these stories in chronological order, it becomes, in, fact, in, in effect, a history of Israel 
and almost like an invisible baton being passed from one person to another, from one generation to another, over 120 years, which is a blip in Jewish history, a blip in world history. But it went from zero, literally zero, with Herzl just publishing a pamphlet about having a Jewish state, all the way up to 2015 when the Prime Minister of Israel is addressing a joint session of the United States Congress for the third time, something no world leader has done other than Churchill, who also spoke three times. It's an amazing story, and it becomes more amazing when you look at it individual by individual, decade by decade, from the beginning to the end. Um, Although you can, in, in my book, you can go to any chapter if you want, and just pick one of these names and look at it, and the story's fascinating because there are a lot of details about people that you think you know, names you know, that I'm sure you don't know the details of, and some names people are not really familiar with that they ought to be because of the incredible things that they've done. So that's what I did. I tried to do eight stories and then put them in chronological order so they'd actually be a history from the beginning to the present for 125 years. I'm talking to Rick Richmond, who's an attorney and the author most recently of And None Shall Make Them Afraid, Eight Stories of the Modern State of Israel. Since I've got your ear, I want to ask you a question that's always confused me. Uh, As I said, I went there as a Protestant Christian first time uh, right after 9-11, actually. It It was in the early part of the next year. And I had my eyes open to a lot of things I didn't know about Israel. And I've been a reporter a long, long time. I had at that time. And when I came back, the group that had invited me said, hey, come and have dinner with a bunch of us. And, and I asked them, uh, because they're a mostly Jewish group, I said, why are American Jews so terribly supportive of a political party that seems to want to throw Israel under the bus every chance it gets, the, the, the liberal Democrats of this country? I've never understood that. Well, it's a great and complicated question. Um, American Jews have always been predominantly liberal, because going back even to the middle of the 19th century, anti-Semitism was coming from the right. And therefore, the left, at least at that point in time, was the champion of individual rights and non-discrimination. And it became, in effect, part of the Jewish DNA that, that that's still there. But you, you have a vibrant conservative Jewish movement, even if it's the minority of American Jews in America, and certainly in Israel, I would say the, the predominant um, uh, view is a conservative one. Well, it's not a bad answer, and it's similar to the answer I got from them. Uh, but, but the second question is why so many young Americans, uh, if you go to almost any college campus in America, You'll see huge amounts of support for a group of people that, whether even though they're not all terrorists, they seem to be led by terrorists, you know, the people who advocate for the Palestinians. And I say, you know, but if you see what's done in the name of the Palestinians on the West Bank or in Gaza, you know, uh, by, by these terrorist groups that, that lead and control those areas, why are 18 to 25-year-olds in college who you'd think would be well-read, although they may be well-indoctrinated as well these days, why are they so supportive of the people who want to engage in terrorism as a way of bringing about change and who have a stated goal of erasing Israel from the map altogether? And yet they advocate for that group and, and against the state that's hanging on by its finger, well, hanging on by its fingernails, but perfectly capable of winning wars. 
I'll give you a quick answer to that. Um, sure. And that is that young American Jews, and indeed older ones too, don't know Jewish history. Because all they, you have to be in your late 70s to remember a time when Israel was, was a state nine miles at its width. And you have to be in your 90s to, re, to remember a world where there wasn't a state of Israel. And so all these people have grown up with Israel in the West Bank, Judea slash Samaria, and they don't see what happened before or why the situation is the way it is. They certainly don't know that the Palestinians have been offered a state five separate times over this period and have rejected it in favor of trying to eliminate the one and only Jewish state. So unless you have this history behind you, and that's really what my book is trying to do, if you don't understand the broader picture of the history behind it, then you're just looking at current events and not understanding the context historically in which the conflict arose. So because, oh, that's what I that's what I think we need, more education. Well, I think you're right, because, Mr. Richmond, I, I loved, I mean, in some ways I kind of like it because it's like sport for me to talk to people who are anti-Israel, especially if they're younger people. And I say, well, what about all the Arabs who live in Israel? And they say, well, there aren't any. I said, oh, oh yeah, there are. And there are plenty. And how about the Arab Christians who live in Israel and they're citizens of Israel? And when they're polled, they say, I'm not leaving here for anything. I'm not going to any other of the Arab states. I want to stay here. This is the place I want to be. And they say, well, no, hold on. And, and. But they don't give them rights. I said, oh, yeah, they do. I said they can serve in the Knesset. Uh, they can vote. They can do all those things. They're treated as, as full citizens. And, and they can't believe it because, of course, they've never heard it from the mainstream media. we got about a minute before we have to wrap up. But what, what would you say to them? Well, I'd just push your point even further, which is there have been Arabs on the Israeli Supreme Court. There have been Arabs who have served as ambassadors of Israel. There are Arabs uh, at Technion, the major uh, scientific university in Israel. There's a huge Arab student population. And so it is, in many ways, a better place for Arabs than any of the surrounding Arab states. You have more religious rights, more political rights, more yeah. ability to speak out. But you're right, the, 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 the general public doesn't understand because they haven't been told, and uh, that's part of the burden of educating people that, well, that all of us who know the story need to say. That book is called And None Shall Make Them Afraid, Eight Stories of the Modern State of Israel. Its author is Rick Richmond. Mr. Richmond, thank you very much. I appreciate the time. You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show. Lars Larson Show. One in five people with disability. Another strong take from President Biden on AI and the weather. Helping web tech, the, web, the web telescope. My God, what is this? This is the Lars Larson Show. You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show.
Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It turns out that we may have been falling for some Democrat talking points for a long, long time because Democrats will tell you all day long and twice on Sunday that, well, you know, crime and murder and violent crime, they're much, much higher in red states or red counties uh, and not so bad in blue places, places that are run by and dominated by Democrats. So uh, I was really excited to see the latest results from Dr. Kevin Diaratna, who's the chief statistician for the Heritage Foundation, who's found out that, well, it turns out that an awful lot of the cities that have the most murders in them are actually run by Democrats. Uh, they're blue cities. Dr. Diaratna, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. So, uh, you know, there, that has been a popular talking point, hasn't it uh, been, for uh, for Democrats say, well, you know, the most dangerous places are actually run by Republicans and they're red states or red counties or red cities. But it turns out the stats, statistics don't don't support that. Indeed. No. And it's absolutely ridiculous. They keep touting this myth that crime is predominant in red states. And while statistically speaking, red states do have higher homicide rates than blue states, the, the bottom line is that crime is a local local question. It is hyper-localized, and therefore it needs to be analyzed at the local level. And we, as a result, when we, we, we looked at this question that has been, you know, been, been propagated in the mainstream media, and the, altogether it shows overwhelmingly that blue counties have higher homicide rates than red counties, and not only do they have higher homicide rates, this, this difference, this disparity between blue counties and red counties has persisted since the early 2000s. And is it getting um, it, worse? Quite alarming. It, um, so in, in recent years, uh, yes, homicide rates have increased um, all across the country, sadly, and that's, that's obviously not a good thing. Um, but yes, they have increased both, um, both in, in areas all across the country, both in blue areas and in red areas. Okay, but is there, I, I guess I'd, I'd ask, is there more of it, or have we seen more of that increase in some of the, because when I think of, of really uh, badly run cities. I think of, say, Minneapolis, which is a, it's, it's in a blue state, and the city itself is politically blue, but it, it famously has some terrible, uh, you know, some terrible crime problems. Illinois is another example where, I don't oh, know about the Cook state, County. but the city, city yeah. of Chicago and Cook County are, are some of the worst places in America in terms of danger from violent crime. Cook County, Illinois is absolutely terrible. Um, yeah, it contains Chicago. And yeah, as we point out, the crime is a hyper-localized phenomenon, and crime occurs at these, uh, in these localities. And yes, there are various changes in, in trends in these localities across time. It would be interesting to look at very specific localities, such as Chicago, such as Baltimore, such as uh, Philadelphia, and so forth, um, or specific localities. But overall, as I mentioned, again, in blue areas and areas that have voted for Democrats and areas with progressive soft-on-crime prosecutors, homicide rates are remarkably higher um, than in, in red counties. Well, and in fact, one of the things I was curious about when I read the story that, that you'd, and the information you'd put together at Heritage was Texas, I would say, is a red state. But I know that both Houston and Dallas 
tend to be kind of blue cities. They're, they're, they're run by Democrats. And if those are the big population centers, most state legislatures are made up from the population centers, not from the overall state. So where we perceive Texas as a really conservative state overall, since its biggest cities tend to be a lot more liberal than the rest of the state, the people they're sending down to Austin to, to write the laws uh, are, uh, tend to be more of the, the, the blue state people. That makes sense, Doctor. Did we lose Doctor Diaratna? I don't think he's there. I'll tell you what, uh, Joel. Can you double check and see if Doctor Diaratna disappeared on us? Because I'm concerned about that. Let me see if we can get him back. Because I wanted to tell you about the rest of the research they've been doing at Heritage, and why is it important? I'm not suggesting to you that this is all about finding who to blame in this case. It's say it's asking the question: Do we have a chance? to make different policies. Well, if the policies are being written up by the Democrat Party in most of those places, but uh, they're in a state that otherwise is conservative, it's not about pointing the finger of blame. It's saying whose policies are going to give us the safest cities in America. And if you conclude that those safe cities come from Democrat policies, you're going the wrong direction. Dr. Diarotna, did, 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 did we get you back on the line? Yeah, I have no idea how that happened, but um, I don't. Exactly I don't either. The phones. Uh, maybe it's the CIA or it's Joe Biden's DOJ yeah. going after us. But I want to just share with my audience some of the other results you got from looking at the actual statistics and not just listening to people like Gavin Newsom, who says eight of the ten top murder states are red. What else did you find out? Don't tell me we lost him again. Yep, I'll bet we lost him again. I'll tell you what. Uh, we're gonna we're gonna check that phone line and see what's. I I have a feeling it's a problem with the phone lines, but that's the conclusion I've got. Is that if you've got to make sure that people are being protected, and you need to have policies that reflect that, you've got to have tough on crime policies. You've got to actually lock people up who are accused of crimes. You've got to keep them in custody. And if those decisions are being made by a legislature dominated by liberal policies, if they're being made by um, governments at a city level or at a county level that are liberal, doesn't matter what the overall state looks like, what the local city uh, does and what the local county does makes all the difference in the world. Doctor, I'm sorry about that. I don't know which end the problem is occurring on. Are you back? No, I yes, I'm back. Feel free to share with my audience some of the other results you got from looking at the stats. Well, yeah, overall, so there are two main problems. So this is coming from a third-way report, um, and I call it a quote-unquote report. Uh, the study is immensely flawed because, firstly, it focuses on crime at the state level, largely to score political points. But the bottom line is homicides occur uh, and are prosecuted at the local level. Um, overall, we see that when you do the analysis properly, um, blue counties have homicide rates ranging to 88% to 62% higher than red counties. Um, going all the way back from 2002 up to uh, 2020. So overwhelmingly, homicide rates are higher in blue states. Another fatal flaw with the third-way analysis is they claim that this phenomenon has been going on for the last 20 years, where that's, they, they claim that they analyzed it over the last 20 years, but they held all the red states in the 2020 election fixed. And anybody, you don't have to be a political scientist to know that electoral, um, electoral changes um, Electoral politics change over time, and electoral sentiment changes over time. So we allowed the uh, the various states to change based on how they voted in each election. 
Um, so we not only redid the analysis, both at the state-by-state state and the county-by-county county level, we did it properly for them. And the end result was what? That overwhelmingly blue counties have had higher homicide rates than red counties for the last 20 years. Now, I don't, I don't suspect, I hope that voters will hear that and understand that, you know, those decisions you make at the ballot box, if you still have a ballot box or on the ballot that you mark on your kitchen table and mail in, uh, that those do make, they do have a consequence for you in the personal safety of you and your family. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, the, and again, the issue is I, I co-authored a, another report with two of my colleagues, Cully Simpson and Zach Smith about a year ago titled The Blue City Murder Problem, where we went into the details of progressive soft-on-crime policies and how they're really harming overall Americans. They literally are harming them and they're endangering them. And it's important that people realize this and push toward public policies that actually help. Dr. Diaratna, thank you very much. That's Kevin Diaratna, who's the chief statistician for the Heritage Foundation. It's a pleasure to have you on the program. Glad to get your calls at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. Vote in our Twitter poll. You'll find that every day at Lars Larson Show and at LarsLarson.com. And you're listening to the Lars Larson Show. You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show. The Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you, and I'll get back to your phone calls and emails shortly at 866-HEY-LARS. I want to introduce Richard Lyons, who is an essayist, poet, screenwriter, and the author of two new books that I find fascinating, The DNA of Democracy and Shadows of the Acropolis. And I want to ask you this question. Mr. Lyons, welcome to the program. And is America moving away from the idea of a democratic republic which we've had for a couple of hundred years. Uh, that's exactly right. And, you know, Lars, like, very happy to be on your show, by the way. Thank, thank like, you, l Like so many of your audience, a number of years back, I began wondering what was happening to our country. And so I, I set about to research how our country was built and then how it has changed from that, from the foundations. And I found that for the past hundred years it has been moving, away from its democratic foundations, away from its constitution, through the building of the administrative state and the dependency state in America, through, through Woodrow Wilson, through FDR, through LBJ. There has been a steady movement away from representative government and local government to uh, autocratic government in Washington, D.C., and it's chronicled in, in uh, Shadows of the Acropolis. Well, and that's the concern I've got, because, Richard, I stress all the time that if you're going to make big changes in our society, make them through the people's representatives. Why? Because right. if we think it's a bad idea and we tell the Congress, Congress is scared to death in most cases to do anything that puts their jobs at risk. And I'd say I'm not a fan of marijuana, but there's a good example of it. You have lots of Americans saying well, it ought to be made legal. I said, get enough votes in the House. And then you got the Senate to deal with, and they'll say, what do you mean? I said, well, the last time I talked to a member of Congress, just a couple of years ago, uh, I said, how many votes are there for marijuana legalization? He said, about 160. I said, so you're about 60 votes short. And he said, yeah. And I said, and I tell people, that's what you do. But at least there you have a measure. What do the people yeah. want? 
If Congress is about to pass something that makes the people unhappy and they let Congress know, Congress backs off fairly quickly, not always, but usually. And uh, and and if they if there's something they really want, uh, then then they tell their members of Congress. But when it's the bureaucratic state, when you've got all these federal agencies that have the power of law, they think, and some of them get way over their skis, you know, like the EPA saying, we're going to regulate this. And even the Supreme Court had to slap them down and say, you don't have authority from Congress to do any of that. And they but they're going to try anyway. When you do yeah. that and, and changes are made that hurt people and people say, who do I complain to? I say, well, this nameless, faceless bureaucrat that you didn't vote for and you can't vote out of office. There's the problem, isn't it? You've, you've hit the, the critical nail on the head, Lars. Um, in my book, I go into this in, in, to a great extent how power is moved from our representative government to, to the agencies. And during the Obama presidency alone, there were over 20,000 rules with the force of law passed through agencies like the EPA, like the IRS, that have, that have the, they enjoy the, the uh, uh, judicial deference, which means that the judiciary is prone not to review them as being legal or constitutional. During the is that the, Chev- of- the Chevron doctrine that says exactly. that if, yeah, if, they, if, you, if they think they have the authority, they probably do, and we, the courts, will stay out of it, right? Right. And then during that same presidency, when 20,000 rules were passed with the force of law, only 400 pieces of legislation passed our representative houses. So think about that proportion. And, and that is not any longer a representative government. No, it's not. But how do we get it back? Because one of the key problems I've seen, and you tell me if I'm wrong about this, the members of Congress don't mind ceding their authority to the agencies, because then when the agencies do something crazy, Congress can say, well, we didn't do that. That was the EPA or it was some other alphabet agency in Washington, D.C., and they get to keep their sweet job on Capitol Hill where no actual work is required to keep the job. In the pro- No, I mean, you can I be a member. I exactly right again. Well, I, I, it, just, it drives me nuts. Department. They're a complaint department. So they get on the news and they complain about this rule or that rule. But you're right. They're not really they're not performing the function as laid down by the Constitution. There was, in the Constitution itself, it says that Congress cannot pass off its rightful duties, and yet they have for the last hundred years. Well, and the other piece about it is they have an oversight authority. In theory, when people say, well, who's supposed to keep an eye on these agencies? I say, well, ultimately, the courts can slap them down if they go too far. But as you said, the courts are reluctant to do that because of right. doctrines invented by the courts. And you say, right. but Congress, Congress has administrative duties so or oversight authority. So they, they bring up this joker, Mayorkas, and say, is the border secure? And Mayorkas, with a straight face under oath, <laughs> under penalty of perjury, says, you better believe the, the border is secure and everybody can see that it's not but you know they they played the game they asked the question they got the answer and they declared all good authority without teeth is an authority it just uh, what can the congress do to mr uh, mallorca they could impeach him and they should have done it uh, about january the 25th uh, in, in my view and they should go to yeah. Biden and a few other people after that. I'm talking to Richard Lyons. His latest books are The DNA of Democracy. They're both out now, Shadows of the Acropolis. So what do we do about it when the co- courts won't act, the Congress is not responsible to the people, uh, and the, uh, and the uh, agencies are running roughshod? 
I think the first thing is for everybody uh, who is like-minded with us, Lars, needs to understand exactly where we are today and then vote against it in overwhelming numbers. People uh, tend, to, tend to look at voting in a passive way. We have to get very active, and we have to come together uh, in the idea that we, we have the birthright of a constitutional government, and we're suffering from a lack of it. You know, there are people who complain about sunsets, sunset provisions and laws. I love every single agency of the federal government, maybe not the Pentagon or the Defense Department. Every other one is going to sunset every five years. And every five That's years, the con- and, you know, stagger them out so they don't all come one year. But, but say, yeah. okay, EPA, every five years, come in and justify your existence. And if we don't uh, agree to keep you on board, then you're gone. You, you, just, you just get dissolved. Or we cut you down to size and approve you under a new set of authorities. Same way an employer would look at an employee who's, you know, turned in a, perf- a disappointing performance, say, you know what, we're going to keep you in your job, but you're losing all of these areas of responsibility and maybe even some paycheck. Uh, and if you if you do really well at that, we'll think about adding some things back. But for right now, you're cut down to size. Uh, Richard, I'd love to I, see that happen. That sounds, like congregate, that sounds like congressional oversight. <laughs> yes, it, yes, that yes, really it does. does. But you see, yes, if they do real oversight and you find out that Mayorkas is a, a big fat liar, then the next question is, then why haven't you impeached him yet? His books are called The DNA of Democracy and Shadows of the Acropolis. He is Richard Lyons. Mr. Lyons, we'll have you back. Glad to have you with me. Uh, glad to get your emails, too. Talk at LarsLarson.com. You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson. The Lars Larson Show. I may be a white boy, but I'm not stupid. This is the Lars Larson Show. Somebody at the White House has been smoking the devil's lettuce. Honestly, provocative talk radio. More than half the women in my cabinet, more than more than half the people in my cabinet, more than half the women in my administration are women. Lars. Our beloved Lars. republic is in the hands of madmen. This is a dark day. No, here's your host. I almost lost my wife, my 67 Corvette. And my cat, Lars Larson. You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. Well, with Donald Trump, who I think is going to win the Republican nomination in the summer of next year, and, of course, Ron DeSantis in the race, the GOP is going to have a full fight card. But who should the Democrats back in 2024? And if you're simplistic and say, well, it's got to be Joe Biden. I mean, he's the president already. He says he's going to run, although he hasn't officially announced uh, should they push Gavin Newsom instead? Peter Roth joins me now, who's a Newsweek contributing editor and a great friend of the program. Peter, welcome back. Hey, Lars, good to be with you. I mean, if they've got a disaster in Joe Biden, uh, I, could they get worse by putting Gavin Newsom up, uh, Newsom up instead and just kick Joe to the curb? No, they're actually trading up if they can swap, if they can pull off the Biden for Newsom swap. Even though they're Newsom- absolutely trading up. Well, they're trading up. He's he's he, he's perhaps more more uh, cogent. Uh, he, he isn't completely brain dead upstairs, but he's got to explain you're going to do to America what you've done to California. That, But that's his platform. He's running. He's going to run. And, and remember, he has thrown his his total, complete 
full-throated support behind Biden. So no one can accuse him of stabbing Biden in the back, which is going to be important to some people. Biden, uh, Newsom is going to run on, I'm going to do to America what I did for California, which in his telling is just made it a wonderful free state, which is true. He's made it absolutely free. Nobody has to pay for anything anymore. They could just steal it if they want it. Um, they don't have to worry about paying for abortions or um, driver's licenses. Um, it's all free because the wealthiest people in California are paying for it. Except a lot of the wealthiest people in California are deciding to pack up and move out, aren't they? Yes. As, as, as Boone says in Animal House, we were just leaving, which is what people in California are doing in droves. Gavin Newsom thinks he can pull the wool over America's eyes and talk about the hot-button cultural issues where California is comfortably in the progressive stream, and he doesn't have to talk about how they're closing Walmarts and Whole Foods in San Francisco because they can't control the crime and the homelessness. And they have all of these um, refugee camps set up because they can't control the state border with Mexico. He thinks he gets the glance over all that stuff, and the liberals in the national media will cover it up for him because it'll be Trump, 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 Trump 24-7 just like it was when he ran against Biden in 2020 and Biden hid in his basement in Delaware. Well, let me ask you this. I'm talking to Peter Roth from Newsweek. So Hillary Clinton made a crucial error, at least one. I mean, she's made so many, but she forgot there's the electoral college. She focused on the popular votes. Mm -hmm. so Newsom nails California, nails uh, maybe Chicago and Illinois, nails New York City, and maybe nails Miami. And the rest of America says, we're not putting that guy in the White House. Uh, how does he get, get over that problem? I think that right now where we are, the country is divided between red states and blue cities and suburbs. They're not really blue states. They're blue cities and suburbs like New York City and Chicago and Portland that are <laughs> oh, dictating. Yeah. Uh, did you know, by the way, they, clo they announced today they're closing the REI in Portland? I, what will I, they do? Where will, I, where will I people get their sleeping bags? I, I know. I, I got to tell you, Peter, and, and that... REI Recreational Equipment Incorporated is a great success story over, what, 85 years. They've been in that location, mm -hmm. and it's one of the toniest neighborhoods in the entire city. I mean, it's where I know this is chump change where you live, but uh, there are condos there that cost 5 to $8 million. I realize that gets you a starter shack in parts of California and New York, but... But this right. is a this is one of it's think of it as the kind of kind of like the commercial Chevy Chase of uh, mm -hmm. of, of Portland. Mm -hmm. And and uh, last fall, they had so many thefts and so many robberies. There were people driving cars through the front of a signature store to rob and burgle the place. And you say and they finally said, look, we're out of here. We can we can take the great outdoors. We can take wild animals. We can take mountains and wild rivers, but we can't take what's going on here. We, we, we'd rather deal with cocaine bear than with the people who are coming into our stores and walking off with our merchandise. And it's the same thing in Gavin Newsom's California, but it's not being talked about. And so 
with the red states versus the blue cities, you've got about 45% of the country that's for Trump, 45% of the country that's against Trump, no matter what, and you're fighting over 10% of the electorate. And Newsom thinks that by being on the progressive side on the culture war issues, he can win over 6% of those moderate independent voters who went with Biden in 2020 and who went against the Republicans in 2022, blunting the impact of the red wave that should have hit. Tell me this then, Peter, how do they get rid of Joe? Um, well, assuming that God doesn't do it himself, right? Um, he may, it, there may be some issue tied to Hunter Biden's dealings, uh, uh, Congressman Jim Comer, who's the, the head of the House Committee on Oversight and Accountability, and a few other congressmen went over to the Treasury Department today to look at some of their financial records. And while he didn't go into detail on what they saw, um, what they saw, they said, was concerning. That could do it. Um, merely the question of age could do it. Uh, and if you look at the poll numbers, um, even even close to a majority of Democrats are saying they want a choice in the primary in the primary. Yeah, what what is it? Twenty five percent want Joe to run for reelection. The other seventy five percent want anything but. Want anything but. And, yeah, and and half of the country says they they think that the Democrats should have a choice. Now that's not all Democrat voters, but half of the country says that they think they should that the Democrats should be offered a choice. But the given president the le- is not winning any popularity contests. No, but given the legal peril he faces the minute he leaves the mm-hmm. office, especially when the Democrats have no further use for him, uh, does he say, well, I'm not going to go quietly? I'm going to hang in there by my fingernails if I have to? Well, I think, I think option one is that they, 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 they make a deal. Uh, but, you know, option two, perhaps, is that they don't care. You know, Biden, Biden was a tool. He was a device to get rid of Trump. That's all he ever was. That was the one thing they needed him to do. He did it. Uh, now he's delivered more on the Bernie Sanders agenda than, um, than the people who voted for him in the primary thought. And so they regard him as expendable. The real issue for them is how you get rid of Kamala Harris. Yeah. Um, you know, as a sitting vice president, you know, how do you get rid of her? Well, you know, one way would be for Sonia Sotomayor to announce that she's leaving. Yeah. Um, the Supreme Court, and then you slot Kamala into that uh, lifetime appointment. Absolutely right. Peter, thank you. You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show. Team Kissin on Hamas. For years now, many of us have been warning that the barbarians are at the gates. We were wrong. They're inside. There are positives as well. I mean, say what you want about Hamas supporters. At least they know what a woman is. This is the Lars Larson Show. You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. There's strange stuff going on everywhere in this country, and I thought we'd talk about a bit of it by bringing on our friend Emma Arns. Emma is a campus reform correspondent, also a student at the University of Tennessee, Knoxville, and she joins me now. Emma, how are you? 
I'm good. Thanks so much for having me, Lars. Would you mind telling my audience what the University of Tennessee is doing by holding an event on abortion pill training? What is that? Sure. So a women's group on the on campus at University of Tennessee invited Maxine Carwile to host the abortion pill training, um, which essentially taught us how to get access to an abortion um, without getting caught by the law because it is illegal in Tennessee to get an abortion. We were recommended specific websites uh, that offered unregulated ac- uh, access to unregulated websites that sold non-FDA-approved medications um, such as the abortion pill from overseas in India, from China. Um, we also were told to keep our mouths shut, to not trust anybody. That's including friends, family, doctors even. We were told to lie to our doctors and falsely claim a miscarriage instead of telling the truth about taking the abortion pill. Um, so the university just proves neglectful of legal and ethical obligations that they're really expected to uphold. Now, Emma, this is, I can call you Emma, can I? I, th- I think I've done it before, but... Uh... Mm-hmm. So this is being done not just under the on the campus of the University of Tennessee. It's being done with the, the, the sign-off of the University of Tennessee, which is a public institution, right? Yeah, University of Tennessee is a taxpayer-funded public institution. Um, this is a registered student organization, so they're recognized by the university. They can use university property to host their events, which in this one they did, um, as well as uh, request funding for certain events. So they have access to um, uh, university property and then fi- financial stuff as well. I guess what I wonder about is if if you and I got together and said, let's rob a liquor store, we would be conspiring to commit a crime. Isn't this organization conspiring uh, in, mm-hmm. in aid of criminal activity when they do that under Tennessee law? Under Tennessee law, I think it gets a little complicated. Um, I know that they're definitely telling the audience, their audience, to do this, which is against the law. Um, so regardless if it's, you know, legally wrong or ethically wrong, I think both it's a problem that it's happening on campus. Um, and I've tried to draw attention towards it uh, by writing this article, by speaking on shows like this. Um, and I've yet to hear back from the university. I've yet to hear back from campus um, security and, and groups that also uh, organize these kind of events. There has been no repercussions against the women's group that hosted this event, uh, nor do I believe there, there has any, been any repercussions against uh, the host of this event. Be- because one of the things that occurs to me is if what they're doing is legitimate, There'd be no reason to tell the students, keep your mouth shut, don't talk to anybody, don't even trust your family, don't trust other people on campus. We're giving you this information to do this. The very fact that they're telling the students, but don't talk about it, don't tell anybody what you're doing, suggests to me strongly that they know that what they're doing is illegitimate and probably illegal as well, isn't it? Well, they definitely, they definitely know. Um, we were told to do that just in case the police ever got involved. Um, we were told to also use private VPNs and browsers when ordering the abortion pill, um, text in private encrypted texting apps just to cover your tracks, essentially, so that if the police didn't get involved, they would have less evidence to find. Um, and tell, not telling your doctor also would, I guess, protect you from them telling the police that you take an abortion pill. Well, it might slow them down, but Emma, 
if what they're doing is legal, there's no reason to keep it secret. If it isn't legal, the very fact that you're you're concealing some of your communications probably isn't going to help you in the long term, is it? Because if the police come to your door and say, did you order these abortion pills through the mail or, you know, you know, online from overseas? If you're bringing in illegal pharmaceuticals from another country without all the proper sign offs, then then that's going to be illegal and they're going to track you down. It, it would seem to me. Yeah, I agree. I think that they, the the act of ordering the abortion pill, I think, is where it's confusing. And it is the act of taking the abortion pill um, where that's where the legal complications come in because you are conducting an at-home abortion in a state that has prohibited abortion uh, and, and values the sanctity of human life. Um, so, yeah, it, it's not the, the first kind of campus event that we've seen that promotes abortion um, at a state institution, for example, Leadership Institute's campus reform previously reported on several instances of abortion propaganda on campus, such as West Virginia University, uh, partnered with a pro-abortion advertising truck, as well as California recently passed a bill that requires all schools in the state to carry and distribute the pill on on campus uh, clinics, as well as Texas A&M had hosted a similar online workshop to a self-managed abortion. So clearly there's still a push for abortion in this country post Roe v. Wade, um, if not greater now. And then especially at that college campus level where students are more naive and confused and, and trying to balance that life, school, work, uh, lifestyle. Okay, because <clears throat> the first thing that occurs to me is how is this going to come to anybody's attention? Well, if the young lady takes the pill that she gets from somebody else, somebody else or gets it on her own and then and then has a miscarriage and tells her doctor, doctor, I think I miscarried. I mean, sad to say, but about a quarter of all natural pregnancies uh, end in miscarriage. And that's sad, uh, but that's that's just the biological facts. That's how it works. Not every pregnancy goes all the way to term. But if she lies to the doctor, that may protect her where everybody's protection goes away. If that young lady suffers any kind of medical malady or, God forbid, dies, then there are going to be questions asked. Was she supplied with drugs by somebody? Did she take an abortion pill? And and unless she's been very, very circumspect and never mentioned it to anybody, you know, then, then when the authorities say, how did she get a hold of this pill and why did we find this in her system after her death? If something bad were to happen to that young lady, somebody's going to have to pay the consequence, aren't they? Absolutely. I think also lying to your medical professional, if you're lying about having a miscarriage, you're skewing the numbers. Uh, there are statistics on who's actually miscarrying, who's dying from miscarriage um, or from, from pregnancy. So it, it really, this is an issue. It doesn't really matter what side you're on. Um, we're, we're talking about the health of young women as well as their safety with obeying the law. Um, so it's, it's, it's really not about, um, you know, conservative or liberal views. It's really just no, a... No, it's not. Well, and, and Emma, if the people of the state of Tennessee have who are a conservative state, if they've told their representatives, we want this to be the law, we want to ban most abortions, that's their choice. And in a representative form of government, they have a right to that kind of representation. Now, if the law that got passed was unconstitutional, that's one reason to throw it out. But otherwise... The people of the state of Tennessee, including the institutions of the state of Tennessee, like the University of Tennessee, Knoxville, should respect that choice. They may not like it, but Emma, I'm not a fan of every law that's on the books either. 
The fact is, Absolutely. though, I don't get a. There's a great Reagan quote from years ago where he said the problem began when young people got the idea that they get to disobey any laws that they don't like. And, and I agreed with him. I said there are lots of laws I think are inconvenient or even troublesome. But while they're on the books, they are the law. Yeah, I mean, it, it, you know, I don't care if you don't like the law. The law still stands. We have the right in this country to uh, make changes to the law legally by voting, such as we saw in Ohio last week. Um, but subverting the law is not the kind of advice we should be giving to young people um, who are attending taxpayer-funded institutions, which are you know, paid by the people who voted to ban abortion in the first place. So that these, these standards should be upheld. These um, laws should be upheld at the university level. I'm, I'm curious, Emma, have you reached out? Do you have a board of trustees or a board of chancellors uh, that runs the University of Tennessee? We do, yes. I'm curious if any of them would be willing to comment. Wouldn't it be an eye-opener if you sat down with one of them and sit down with them and say, are you aware the university where you're a trustee is, is running events to advise young ladies how to break the law and kill an unborn child? I kind of wonder what the board of trustees would think about that. That's Emma Arns. Emma, thank you very much. Campus reform correspondent and a student at the University of Tennessee. We'll be back in a moment. I'll get to your phone calls and emails. You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show. The Lars Larson Show. knew better do you all of it began the first time some of you who know better and are old enough to know better let young people think that they had the right to choose the laws they would obey as long as they were doing it in the name of social protest this is the lars larson show you're listening to the best of the lars larson show welcome back to the lars larson show if i have to admit as i've made my rule to admit anytime i have a dog in the fight i am a uh, protestant christian and so i've enjoyed the friendship of a guy by the name of professor T.B. Thornton, uh, I know him as Tracy, and he joins me now, a Christian theologian and the author of a new book called Giants in the Earth, the Methuselah Chronicles, book one. Uh, Tracy, it's good to have you on the program. Thanks so much for taking the time. Thank you, Lars. It's quite an honor to be on with you. Well, listen, I just wanted you to tell people, because I've, I've read one of your two books, the, the, the second one I have not had a chance to read yet, but you decided as a man with a theologian's background, but also as a day job, uh, which you worked for quite a time, uh, as a butcher. So you, you know, this isn't a guy who just sat in the hallowed halls of, you know, the Ivy League somewhere or sat on a college campus. He actually knows how to work for a living. But then you said, I think I can write some books that actually help amplify Christianity by putting it into fictional, not, not the book into fictional form, not the Bible, but to tell other stories that are associated with it. And I wanted you to describe that for me. Well, I appreciate that. I, uh, I'll tell you, I, I was a working man for quite a while. I worked as a butcher for more than 30 years. And, uh, but I'm also a guy who likes fiction, so I decided I'd write something that wasn't redone like most everything is, and I wanted to depict biblical heroes. Now, these heroes in this book happen to be people we know about, but we don't know much about. But I wanted to depict biblical heroes that, while flawed, were men and women of faith, 
who lived their faith as if God were literally right beside them. So, and that's kind of the 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 thrust of my writing style, I guess you could say. Well, and I think that's important because right now, if there's anything that's troubling a lot of us, it's how in the world did America become the kind of country it is today? And many people, including me, go to the idea that, well, it's because the country has kind of abandoned its faith base. And, and it had a strong faith base. In fact, I had a conversation with a family member last night, and, and, uh, and the family member said, well, America is not just a Christian nation. I said, no, we're not a theocracy. Uh, but our founders right. were Christians, and what they wrote was they wrote a document called the Constitution, said, you don't have to be of any faith. The government is forbidden to force you to follow a certain faith. In fact, you can be of no faith whatsoever. And you can still hold public office. You can be a citizen. These were Christians, but they were pluralistic Christians who said, you know, we want a country where people of all faiths, or even people, sadly, of no faith, are welcome, can run for office, and prosper. So it, it's a country that I think benefited a lot from its Christian roots. I can't really ab imagine our friends, the Muslims, writing a constitution that was as friendly to all the other faiths. Uh, but but right. that's a subject for another day. But, but that's what you're getting at, is this country needs some kind of faith base, and we've walked away from it. I say we as a country. I haven't. You haven't. But a lot of the country has simply walked away from it and forgotten all the blessings we got. That's true. And uh, it, it is kind of sad. It's not only that we've walked away, we've denied uh, the power of faith. And the problem is, too, is this... Uh, I don't know, this nebulous idea of what faith is, because, you know, you hear a lot of things, you got to have faith, you got to have, you know, but the problem is, what is that faith, and does it, does it have legs when trouble comes? Now, as a person who's gone through some pretty major health issues, I had to find that out pretty quick. I was told at one point I had a brain tumor, basically, and I had to find out if my faith had legs. And thankfully, and through the Lord's help, I found that out. But we have forgotten where we came from, and we've denied where we've come from. And we've, we've left God out of the picture. I mean, geez, even, even at Christmas, we leave Jesus out of the Christmas party. So that's kind of where we are as a nation right now. It's worrisome. Well, maybe books like Giants in the Earth and Methuselah Chronicles, book one, which is uh, Professor T.B. Thornton's latest book, and I encourage you to take a look at it and his other books as well. Uh, but, uh, Professor, i got to ask you about this. See, I think I would have been much more enthralled with Sunday school back when I was a kid if they'd said, by the way, there were giants and there were unicorns and there were a lot of other things, except it was never really put that way. You, you've actually said, I'm going to create some stories that are true to the book, the book, uh, but they still right. expand upon this by using some of the same heroes from the book without departing from the overall message. How did you do that? Well, I'll tell you, I was raised in a way to take things quite literally uh, in the Bible, and I know that's, that's scoffed at nowadays, but the, the fact is, I believe truly believe, and Genesis 6-4 says that in those days there were giants in the earth, yep. and the sons of God, meaning the fallen angels, in my theory, came in unto those daughters and were born to them giants. 
actual giants. And if you do the word study really deeply, you find that that means giant men. And I take it literally, and I write a story about it. And, the, and in the book, there's a lot of really cool things in there. Kids love it. Adults love it. Uh, but it's got... It's got giants. It's got angels and fallen angels. It's got some dinosaurs, uh, which, according to Job, he describes in Job 41 and 40, the behemoth and the leviathan. And uh, so I include those things in there, and and it kind of grabs the imagination of the kids. There's a reason we have all these uh, stories of fire-breathing dragons. Read Job 41. You'll see where they come from. So... They've got kind of a faith base. And you did aim it to some extent at younger adults, didn't you? Or or, or am I wrong in that? You, you know what? That's the funny thing is when I started writing it, I wanted to write something that I would want to see. I mean, I, I honestly, I got a little sick of seeing the same old Batman, Superman regurgitations. And I wanted to write something with real heroes, with real people. And, and uh, it ended up that, Kids love it, but adults love it too. I just, it seemed because it's a fantasy type thing, uh, a lot of people believe that it was written for kids, which it, you know what? I tried to write it for everybody. I got, but, uh, I got to tell you though, Tracy, there, there are plenty of adults, friends that I know who play Dungeons and Dragons or they play other games exactly. that are, that are based on fantasy stories because they find them entertaining. And believe me, if exactly. you didn't believe in fantasy stories, uh, you wouldn't have had a lot of people enjoying the Lord of the Rings series, either in books or on movies. Where do you plan to go exactly. next with this storytelling, and how do you make sure you stay true to the original so you don't depart too far from chapter and verse? Well, in all, this, this series is going to have seven installments. Uh, book one, Giants in the Earth is the first. It's kind of an introduction to the characters, and there's a really good storyline there. Um, and some really cool stuff happens. It's a little brutal in spots, but everything is anymore. And uh, book two carries that on with a lot of the same characters, but some new ones too. And uh, the whole idea is it's the Methuselah Chronicles. Now, Methuselah was the oldest man ever to live, according to the Bible. He lived to be 600, 969 years. So I'm carrying it through. Book one starts when he's 16. Book two, eight years later. Now, book three I'm writing, that's eight years later. But I'm going to jump forward, and by the end, it's going to end with Methuselah's death, which also happens to be exactly when the Bible says the flood came. Yep. So. It's gonna, it's, and you may have to write a flood story as well. There are endless spin-offs, <laughs> spin-offs I can imagine. That is uh, Professor T.D. Thornton. I know him as Tracy Thornton, an author of the new book called Giants of the Earth and Methuselah Chronicles. Tracy, it's a pleasure. Thank you so much. Back in a moment, you're listening to The Lars Larson Show. You're listening to The... What? 
Elon Musk sums up America's government. And what I see all over the place is people who care about looking good while doing evil. This is the Lars Larson Show. You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the program. Glad to have you with me. And despite 10 Republican-led states embracing universal school choice, the southern parts of the United States lag behind. Is there a connection between the teachers' unions and southern lawmakers hindering school choice initiatives? I thought we'd talk about that with John Tillman, who's CEO of the American Culture Project, John, welcome to the program, and in in the interest of full disclosure, I'll tell you that while I went to public schools, government-run public schools, I'm completely in favor of school choice, and I think it would be good for everybody, for the taxpayers, for the parents, for the students, and even for the teachers, because everything would improve if we had true school choice. Welcome back. Well, uh, Lars, great to be with you, and uh, yeah, we have a problem in these uh, states I wrote about in the Wall Street Journal earlier uh, in the week, or last week, rather. The, uh, the teachers unions have been giving money to Republicans of all people in Texas, Georgia, Mississippi and Alabama in order to block revolutionary school choice that could uh, really improve the lives of all children, but especially uh, minority children and poor children, uh, particularly in the larger cities. Well, I think when somebody offers you money, you ought to take it. But then you say, I'm going to take your money, but I'm not going to go along with your position. Is there something else that explains why Southern Republicans would say, sure, give me the money. I'll vote against school choice. I mean, why would they go that direction? I think one of the one of the truisms of politics that I always talk about is that there's two kinds of politicians. There's the politician who becomes a politician because he has an agenda, a policy agenda he cares deeply about or she cares deeply about and wants to advance. Then there's a lot of politicians who adopt a policy agenda to fuel their political ambitions, and they're fairly untethered. Uh, from an ideological or principled point of view. And so what happens to these types of Republicans in these states and around the country, uh, the people that are out their door knocking the most, the people that are most often in the hallways of the state capitol are the unions, and particularly the teachers' unions, and they become friendly. They get to know them. They know them in their community because the teachers, of course, are members of the union, and they have a very uh, seductive way of becoming ingratiated with these state reps, and then they begin to give them money. And then they start to have an open mind in listening to the fall claims of the teachers union. So one of their claims, for example, is that school choice will harm rural and suburban schools, which of course is not true. Rural and suburban schools on average start to get more money uh, in the public system. uh, And they also start to see more choices develop. What we have to be loyal to, Lars, is children, not public education systems, not the educational industrial complex, not the teachers union. It's the kids and choice for kids is what's best. No different than with their doctor or the kind of food they eat. Well, I agree with you, John. And one of the things I've always <laughs> challenged, I mean, on the rare occasions when I get a chance to talk to somebody who's against school choice, because the unions, for the most part, don't talk to me. Uh, be- but, but I'll ask them. I said, can you name me any part of life anywhere on the planet where competition does not produce two primary things, it has a lot of other uh, you know, uh, good effects as well, but the two primary things are excellence and low cost. And, and there are very few examples where you can find where competition does not produce excellence and low cost. Why wouldn't we want that applied to education? And I think that, that it stymies most of them because if you say, does excellence produce a great NBA full of players who are the most capable? Yeah. Uh, okay. What if you took away uh, competition and you said, let's have NBA players 
kept on teams based on their seniority. So the older you get, the less likely you are to get cut. And the young, bright player who comes in, he's only been there a year or two. Uh, if they have to let anybody go, they have to let the kid go. And you say, would that make a better NBA? And they say, well, of course not. And I said, why would it make a better school system? But that's exactly the way the school system works under unions. Last hired, first fired. The senior folks stick around, whether they're doing a good job or not. If it actually causes the public schools, the government schools, pain, good. Because pain in every other part of life. If you walk into a restaurant and all your friends say, it's the worst restaurant in town, don't go there. And the restaurant starts to lose business. If they don't change their game, then they go out of business, and they should. And I, I would apply the same logic to schools. If you don't produce a good product, uh, educated kids, then then you should go out of business. But none of them really face that until recently. That's exactly right. And the thing that's particularly uh, uh, infuriating about this is who are who is most harmed by this? So let's talk about a type of choice. There's a type of choice in affluent communities are among affluent people. They can send their kids to the public school or they can send their kids to the private school. In Illinois, the, uh, the head of the Chicago Teachers Union, the head of the Chicago Teachers Union, who's called school choice evil and racist, sends her own child, her home high school student child, to a private school. And when confronted on this, her answer was, well, I need to have the best options for my child that the public school can't provide. And we all went, bingo, now you understand why you should be an advocate. But what happens is she makes a lot of money, so she can afford it. What about those same families of black and brown kids in the city of Chicago and white kids who are poor and can't afford to send their kid? They are saddled with a failing school. When you look at the country, it's places like Chicago, Detroit, Baltimore, Oakland, Los Angeles, Dallas. These are the places, large urban schools, often with significant minority populations, if not majority minority, those are the children that are being harmed by a lack of choice because those with money can opt out because they're willing to pay twice. That's why universal school choice is so powerful and why it's such a threat to the teachers union. And these 10 states that are leading are really going to set the bar higher. And eventually, I think these four states I wrote about in the Wall Street Journal, Mississippi, Alabama, Texas, and Georgia will come along. Well, I'm talking to John Tillman, who's CEO of the American Culture Project, and you can read the, read the piece he put for the Wall Street Journal. But there was a number I heard just today that really was stunning. So if you go back to 2019, four years ago, uh, actually closer to three years ago, um, that that 1% of American parents had school choice available to them, not because they're rich, but because it was offered in their area. Today, it's closer right. to 36%. So we've seen a 36% explosion of school choice in three or four years. I mean, that, that says... This is where Americans and the and the parents and the kids want to go, isn't it? Absolutely, and all the polling shows that. School choice is overwhelmingly popular with Republicans, with Democrats, with independents. It's popular with African-American voters and Hispanic voters. The only people that school choice is not popular with are the teachers' unions and the educational bureaucracy that runs government-run schools. And going back to your earlier point, remember, the government is a monopoly provider of services. The only way that you can, and the union, of course, the teachers' union is a monopoly provider of the labor for the educational <laughs> services in a government school. 
The problem with that is there's no accountability. When you go to up against the bureaucracy or up against that teacher, they, we look at the Loudoun County fights that went on during the Governor Youngkin uh, uh, governor's race in 2021. They shut you down. They do not want to hear from you. As uh, uh, the, uh, um, Terry McAuliffe, the candidate for governor that year, oh said, we don't really want to hear we don't really want to hear from the parents. <laughs> but, you know, in a private school, when you go in, you're a customer with a checkbook, and you're writing checks to that uh, school. The beauty of universal school choice, it gives that checkbook to a poor mother who has a, a, a promising child who could do better if they got in a better school. One of Absolutely the things we learned, right. John, Clark, I'm up against the break. That's John Tillman from the American Culture Project. The Lars Larson Show. I may be a white boy, but I'm not stupid. This is the Lars Larson Show. Somebody at the White House has been smoking the devil's lettuce. Honestly provocative talk radio. More than half the women in my cabinet, more than more than half the people in my cabinet, more than half the women in my administration are women. Lars. Our beloved republic is in the hands of madmen. This is a dark day. No, here's your host. Almost lost my wife, my 67 Corvette. And my cat, Lars Larson. You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you. And usually I make it a rule that I don't bring personal matters to the show. I just don't think it's appropriate. I think what is appropriate is to talk about issues that are issues for the people who listen to this show. I try to serve my audience the best way I can. But occasionally, there's an issue that comes to my personal attention, and I think, well, you know what? Even though this involves me, it involves my family, I think I ought to talk about it because I would imagine I'm not the only person. And so that, in that case, I'm willing to break my own rule. And I want to talk about that because it involves a real fraud that is being perpetrated on the people of the United States. But I'll get to that in just a moment. First, welcome to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you. It's really a pleasure to take your calls at 866-HEY-LARS. And if you happen to be a naysayer, we'll put you right to the head of the line at 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. Now, you might have noticed, I was recently off the air for a day. And it was unexpected. It wasn't a planned vacation day or anything like that. I took the day because my wife got sick. And you say, well, your wife got sick? Very sick. So uh, she has kidney stones, has had them for a long, long time. And she usually toughs them out. I've never had kidney stones myself, but they are notoriously something as they compare it usually as painful or more painful than childbirth. So in most cases, she simply toughs it out. You know, take some ibuprofen, that kind of thing, and gets through the experience. Because, you know, in most cases, you can't do surgery. In most cases, uh, even the lithotripter technology, you know, try and bust the stone up into little pieces and let it pass more easily. It's not a, a pleasant process any way you cut it. So when do we go to the emergency room? When it's so bad that you think there is no other alternative, you've got to get some something serious done. So we did that. And guess what happened? We had, I mean, look, it's never a fun time to go to the emergency room of any hospital anytime because you're always there with a lot of other people who are also feeling that they're in desperate medical circumstances and they need professional help. Now, what would you say if a hospital said, we're going to sell you services like any other business in America, but we don't actually have any. We know that we're already out, but we're going to sell it to you anyway. 
Because, as you know, if you've ever looked at any of the bills, if you've ever been to the emergency room, if you get that bill, even if insurance is paying a lot of it, you say a couple of thousand dollars, basically, to walk in the door. I mean, even if you have nothing serious done, a typical trip to the emergency room can be two to $5,000. Now, I know a lot of people don't give a damn what it costs because they say, well, the insurance company's paying for it. All I have to do is pay my deductible. I don't take that point of view. I take the point of view that that is an entity like any other business in America, whether it's a nonprofit and many hospitals are nonprofits. This one is the legacy system. I'll, I'll call the names out. Uh, it's a nonprofit, but they get paid a lot of money by the insurance companies and by the government as well. The people who work there, the doctors, the nurses, you know, they get paid very well as well. So what happens when an institution begins to sell services that it doesn't have? And they know they don't have it, but they're going to sell it anyway because it still means dollars to the bottom line. I think that's the real majority of, of what's going on here. So what happens? Go to the emergency room. They say, okay, you're right. Uh, you suspected it was a kidney stone. It is a kidney stone. Nothing is you know going wrong with you otherwise, your heart or anything else. Uh, we'll do the tests, and then you sit. And I understand sitting in emergency rooms. I've, I've been in emergency rooms at times, not for myself, but for family members for 10 or 12 hours. It's never fun. I get that. But this one ended with a conversation I had with a doctor, and it was a pleasant conversation. I mean, it was a pointed conversation, but I was not rude uh, to the doctor. But I said to the doctor, he came in and he said, look, it's a five millimeter kidney stone. It's a big one. And uh, and it's going to be tough. And uh, Tina knows she's passed the ones that big before, and it's no fun. No fun when you go to the restroom and you see a, a toilet bowl full of blood. Uh, that's not fun. It's it's painful. So what does he tell me? She had a five millimeter, five, has a five millimeter kidney stone. Okay. Uh, if you knew that doctor, and I literally asked this doctor, I won't have to name him, but he works at Legacy. I said, doctor, if you knew that you had a patient who you'd given about two hours of pain meds to, is it appropriate medical care to park the patient in the lobby of the emergency room for five hours. And you know the pain meds have worn off. Doesn't it make sense to admit that patient if the condition is that serious? And you know what he told me? He said, I would have, but we have no room. The entire hospital is full. Now, we're not talking about the aftermath of a hurricane or an earthquake or some other civil calamity. We're talking about a regular Tuesday. That's all it was, a regular Tuesday. Even the emergency room kind of spoke to that. Many of the people in there were clearly there for aches and pains and other things that I'm sure were causing them a lot of discomfort, and that's why they came. But when he says, well, we don't have any room, and I said, what do you mean by that? He said the entire emergency room is full, and 20 of the people being parked in the emergency room, the reason all these other people being parked in the hallways, I mean, it's like visiting some kind of third-world hospital and in the lobby where they're not getting, and he as much, because I, I asked him twice, I said, is that appropriate medical care? He says, well, we're following the process. You know, I get so tired of both government agencies and private institutions saying, well, yeah, we didn't do the right thing, but you know what? We followed the rule book, and as long as we follow the rule book, no harm, no foul. And I said, well, why is the emergency room full? He says, because the entire hospital is full. So the hospital has 20 people in the emergency room who are waiting for the first room that opens up in the hospital. The hospital had no room.
It was so full that people who should have been in hospital rooms were parked in the emergency room, and people who should have been in the emergency room are parked out in the lobby and in hallways where they're doing medical care under the kind of conditions you're used to seeing in some in video from some foreign country. And you say, hold on, when you walk in, is it incumbent on the hospital to say to you, by the way, we have no room here. So if you think you're, I mean, if you walk in with a gunshot, you go walk in bleeding from a car wreck, yes, you're going to get into a room somewhere. But otherwise, we're going to charge your insurance every single dime we can for an emergency room visit, even though we have no emergency room. The entire thing is full. Now, you say, well, there's nothing they can do about that. Let me give you a couple of responses to that. Number one, an awful lot of medical professionals, including in the state where I live, about 3,000 medical professionals were given pink slips because they wouldn't take the jab, the mRNA so-called vaccine for COVID. So the hospital systems just fired them or told them, you can't come to work for us if you don't have the jab. And what did their colleagues, the other doctors and nurses and everybody else say? Nothing. They kept their jobs. They said, I'm not going to stand up for my colleagues. So you fire thousands of workers, and then you run around saying, Congress gave us tens of billions of dollars, but you know what? We're short of cash. We're still charging people full rate to go to the emergency room. Yes, I know the insurance pays it in most cases, but we don't really have an emergency room. But we're still going to charge full rate. Now, I just ask you, if you as a business said, I'm going to sell something, but I know I don't have any of those things, but I'm still going to charge the full amount for that something that I already know I don't have. Do you call that fraud? Because I call that fraud. In any case, just a couple of thoughts. Back in a moment, I'll get to your calls at 866-HEY-LONGS. You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show. has welcomed naysayers for 27 years, but occasionally... Who is this person who speaks to me as though I needed his advice? This is the Lars Larson Show. You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the program. Glad to be with you and always glad to take your calls. And in fact, I want to take this call from Russ because in talking to Frank Gaffney a moment ago about the fact that uh, you've got Dick Durbin, Democrat senator from Illinois, who is saying, why don't we take some of these illegal aliens that Joe Biden has invited to invade our country, people who've broken the laws of our nation and have come here illegally, and why don't we put them in the U.S. military and say if they serve a certain term in the military that we will grant them either resident status or the opportunity to become citizens. I think that's a lunatic idea, but it's coming from Dick Durbin, so what would you expect? But Russ had something else on his mind. Russ, welcome to the program. What's on your mind? Hi. Yeah, I served 11 years in the military, Thank and you. I came in during the uh, Vietnam, uh, right at the end of Vietnam. They had the draft. Now, why can't they bring back the draft since the military is having such a hard time recruiting people um, into the service? I mean, when I re-enlisted, I got bonuses that yep. were 
Well, and those, they're offered now, too. There are huge bonuses being offered by the military for recruitment. Yeah. But the thing I'd ask you, Russ, you weren't drafted into the military, or were you? I was called up to be drafted. But so I you turned knew- around and volunteered. And when I volunteered, I could pick my own MOS that I wanted to go into. I'm curious, did they actually give you the MOS you picked? Because I've heard all kinds yes. of stories over the years of people who say, yeah, they told me I could have my pick, and whatever they picked, they usually got something else. Well, you didn't. Ha- they didn't have a very good recruiter, because you go into a recruiter and you tell them what you're interested in. But I was interested in um, engineering, uh, construction engineer mechanics. Right. And so I... I talked to the recruiter about it, and he said, okay, we'll send you to boot camp, we'll send you to AIT for construction engineer uh, deal, and they guaranteed in writing that I would get uh, training in the, I was a 52 Bravo um, engineer, and it was all in writing, and if you did not get that um, in writing, then they can put you in and anything they want to put you in. Yeah. You've got to talk to a recruiter, and they would give you that, that MOS. If you're drafted, you're basically... You're, you're whatever they want you to be. So let me ask you this, though, Russ. Do you think we have a better military when every man and woman in the military knows that every single person, the person to their right, the person to their left, and the person who's got their six... They're all there because they chose to be there, or do we be better off with a military made up, at least in part, of people who are forced to be there by being drafted? I don't think that sounds like a great way to run the operation, does it? Well, we had people who were drafted, and after they've gone through BASIC and AIT, they've, they kind of had a different idea. Yeah, and some uh, yeah, of them were, probably were, liked it, but Russ, that doesn't address this question. This question is, if we have a military and everybody in the military is there, uh, they may have rough times uh, you know, during their military service, but they're there because they chose to be there. Would we yeah. improve the military by conscripting some people and saying, you have no choice, you are going in the military against your will? I don't know if you'd improve anything by forcing people into the military. I think you would degrade the military by doing that, is my opinion. Because, Russ, anything you're forced to do, you might actually turn out to like something you were forced to do. Or you might turn out not to like it. But I think the odds are much better of you uh, appreciating your military service and saying, this is what I chose to do because you chose to do it. And if you tell people, no, no, you don't have any choice, we're going to make you be in the military, I don't think that's a positive. So bringing back the draft does not seem like a great option, especially since we're in peacetime as well. Glad to get your calls at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. And our Twitter poll today, uh, should Congress let the FBI keep its power to spy on Americans? I'd say no to that. The U.S. Congress is deciding right now if the FBI does not have its power to spy on both foreign nationals and Americans renewed by the end of the year, then they lose it altogether. Let's go to Alabama and talk to Chris. Hey, Chris. 
I'm told you're a naysayer, but I got the impression you might agree with me. What's on your mind, sir? It's a bit of both, Lars. Thanks for having okay. me on the show. Go for it. Um, I, I am 100% in agreement with you on illegal immigration. I, I don't agree with that in any way, shape, or form. I understand your concerns with all of the uh, folks that are coming in. I just want to simply uh, pinpoint the only place that I'm a naysayer would be on illegals possibly serving in the military to earn citizenship. The example that I have, I got 29 years in the Army. Uh, I have a deployment to Iraq. I served in Iraq with uh, a young man who was Mexican, whose parents brought him here illegally when he was a child. So he's a dreamer. And as he, One of the Dream Act, uh, or Dream, it wasn't an act. It was a piece of paper signed by Obama, but it was the Dream Program, right? I believe that actually was yeah. what it was under. But where, I, where this is a bit of a double-edged sword for me is... You know, I don't, I don't want spies in the military, that's for sure. But for people like that, and I don't know how that you would vet that, uh, he was one of the best soldiers I knew. He was happy to be there. He wanted to be an American. He wanted to serve his country. And he was my daddy's friend. Oh, okay. Who is that, Chris? <laughs> that's my daughter. She's in the oh, car with me. Sorry about that. How old is she? Nine. Nine. You know what? Compliment her because uh, because it's tough for me to slip in uh, those little co comments in between. And she did it just perfectly. So, yeah, give her my best. Thank you. Well, here's the thing I'm concerned about, Chris. Number one, if you take just take the run of the mill illegal alien, these uh, millions that Joe Biden has invited in. What do you suppose the average level of education is for those people who are seeking to come into America illegally? Probably likely low. I'm not sure if they would. But, you know, if you're going to do this program, it would have to be kind of like letting the folks in the country in the first place. You would have to vet them. You'd have to know who they are. You'd have to have background. They would have to pass the ASVAB, if your listeners don't know what that is. That's a great set of tests they ought to use in every school, <laughs> frankly. But uh, I would I would highly agree with that. Uh, and and I, I, this individual read, write, spoke English and went to school here. So it, it's just that he was illegal because he had been brought here by his parents. And, and the, concern, the concern I've got, though, Chris, is, number one, you take all the illegals who wouldn't qualify. If you can't speak English reasonably well, read and write and do a little bit of math. In other words, what you'd have if you had a high school diploma or a G GED, how do you train people? who are starting at a basis where they're b below zero. I mean, most, I, I, I haven't checked in a while, but most of the military services will not take you without a GED or a high school diploma. And why? Why wouldn't you take a ninth grade dropout? Because you want them to have a certain basic level of skills so that, the, so that you can quickly train them, you know, both at, uh, you know, both at, uh, at boot camp and then later at their MOS school. But if you start taking just any illegal alien, the second concern I've got, which Frank Gaffney brought up, we're seeing this stunning number of Chinese nationals who appear to be fighting age males not accompanied by their families who say, I'm a refugee or I'm an asylum seeker. You say, what are you seeking asylum from that you ran from your home country without your family, without your kids, and now you show up here? 
uh, and you appear to be fighting age males, I kind of suspect where that's going as well. Chris, thanks for the call from Alabama, and thanks to that young lady with her great comment. Glad to get your calls at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. Vote in our Twitter poll, and you're listening to The Lars Larson Show. You're listening to the best of The Lars Larson Show. The Lars Larson Show. to an interview again check out larslarson.com you're listening to the best of the lars larson show welcome back to the lars larson show it's a pleasure to be with you on a first amendment friday i gotta tell you something this story really got to me i respect veterans for their service in uniform and imagine this if you were asked the question should a 95 year old veteran of military service this is a korean war veteran should he lose his house should he lose his place of residence, happen to be an old folks' home, but should he lose that place where he lives to make room for illegal aliens, in this case, in New York State? Well, Congressman Ben Klein joins me now. He's a Republican who represents Virginia's 6th Congressional District. Congressman, it's good to have you on always. Welcome back. Great to be back, Lars, and uh, the terrible story of the impact of this uh, uh, open border that we have going on right now. Yeah, Frank Tamaro, who or tomorrow, I think is the way you say it, T A M M A R O. Uh, he's he's sitting there at his uh, his senior center in Staten Island, New York, and they come to him a few months ago and say, "Hey, clear out! You got six weeks to get all your stuff, pack it up, and get out." Now, probably in the military, there were sergeants and lieutenants who'd say, "Pack up! It's time to go." But but this is entirely different. And and he asked, "Well, why do I have to go?" And they say, because the city of New York bought your senior center and we're going to stuff it full of illegal aliens that Joe Biden allowed to flood across our border and invade America. What should Americans think about that? It's infuriating. And that just goes to show you the uh, the value that the Biden administration holds for our veterans. It's zero. It's below uh, the value that they hold these illegal immigrants coming in. They're happy to have them in. And the mayor of New York is happy to put them up in housing that they've stolen out from under our nation's veterans. So uh, we've got to stand up to the administration. We've got to stand up to the Senate, who is refusing to take up strong border legislation that we passed earlier this year uh, and demand action now. Congressman Klein, let me ask you this. Is it going to be a uh, trying tough questions even on friends like you because you're a good friend of the show? Are you certain this isn't happening in the Commonwealth, your Commonwealth as well? Because people have been asking me, where are these nine million people? Where'd they go? I said, well, they went to some of the biggest cities and we can see the effect there because they're enough to make them visible, but they're going everywhere in the, on, uh, in the country and there are nine million of them since Joe Biden took office. That's the official count. Seven and a half million who were uh, actually identified by border patrol when they came across and one and a half million gotaways. They went somewhere. Are we certain that they're, they're, they're not crowding out the veterans in, in uh, old folks' homes in the Commonwealth of Virginia, too? 
Well, they're most definitely in the Commonwealth of Virginia, and they're putting added pressure on school systems right now as schools get underway. Uh, they're putting pressure on our, our housing supply, our transportation network, our food supply, uh, our health care system. You know, I visited Yuma, Arizona, right on the border where we saw a NICU unit for preemies, and it was uh, too often those limited numbers of beds, only about eight or nine beds in the hospital, right. were being taken up by uh, illegals coming across. And the women who were citizens of Arizona had to go hours away to Phoenix to have their baby. So this is happening all across the country. Every community is a border community now. And until we actually secure our border, uh, it's going to continue to cost uh, not only taxpayers dollars, but also lives uh, from the fentanyl, from the human trafficking, the sex trafficking, and the violence that's coming as well. I'm talking to U.S. Representative Ben Klein, the congressman who represents Virginia's 6th Congressional District. Do you know the one where I'm not hearing any complaining, but I have a feeling it's being camouflaged? Because while an awful lot of these people coming across the border are fighting-age males, which should strike anybody as strange, because if you say, well, I'm fleeing from persecution, really? And you came without your wife and kids? What the heck is going on there? When you flee from persecution, you don't say, hey, honey, I got to go. And dad splits town and leaves mom and the kids behind uh, facing the same persecution he claims to be fleeing from. It strikes me that either dad's going off to get a job in America because the, the getting is much better up there uh, than it is down south. Uh, but it also strikes me that when they have brought in family units, all these kids are flooding into the schools as well. And yet, Congressman, have you heard a single school district in America saying, hey, we're swamped with these kids of illegal aliens? Because I know they have a Supreme Court decision that says they have a right to go to school. But that doesn't stop them from crowding the schools that are already too crowded to begin with. Uh, not only are they letting me know in private conversations, you may not hear them speaking up at school board meetings or the school board members speaking at their meetings, but you, I, I hear from them, and what they're telling me is not only are the classrooms crowded, they have to hire more teachers, you have a teacher shortage, uh, and but also the number of English as a second language or ESL teachers that are having to be hired in each school division uh, is increasing. And, you know, you, we have 200 countries in the world or thereabouts, and, and we've got about 170 uh, people from 170 different countries coming across the border. Uh, it is concerning that, that they are single fighting age males. Uh, we have uh, coming from China, places like China. Uh, what what are they doing crossing the border? You know, we, we are the richest nation on earth. It's great that we are the nation we are, but uh, we can't be that destination for every person seeking a better life because uh, asylum laws are for people escaping a war or religious persecution or uh, elimination, you know, genocide based on race or ethnicity. So those are reasons for seeking asylum and under our laws, not just because you want a better job or earn more money or help your family back home. So we've got to enforce our asylum laws. We've got to reestablish or remain in Mexico where you have to stay in Mexico while you're claim is being heard. We also have to change the system so that when you come from South or Central America, 
the first safe country you get to, that's where you request asylum. You don't get to pick and choose which country you use your destination for your asylum request. You have to just go to the next safe country, and that's where you can request asylum. Well, and we should make that explicit in federal law, but that's going to have to wait until you get Republican majorities in both houses. But it strikes yeah, we me that it's... We passed it in HR2, we passed it in the House bill, and it's sitting in the Senate right now. If we uh, passed a bill earlier today that would have... Uh, passed H.R. 2, secured the border, put in remain in Mexico because immigration and the crisis on our border is the most fundamental crisis right now facing this country, and funded the government at reduced levels, essentially pre-COVID spending levels, which uh, Republicans mostly support. But um, unfortunately, we weren't able to pass it. Every Democrat voted against it. The Democrats in the Senate said it was a non-starter. So they are trying to jam us with a bill without border money and Ukraine. Instead, they're putting Ukraine money in it. We're going to oppose that. We're trying our best to avoid a shutdown uh, here on October 1st. Okay, so uh, one last thing, because I I got a call from a a former Marine, a retired Marine. And he said, well, our paychecks when I was in the government shutdown went just fine. I said, but at this point, there is something different this time, isn't it? The Democrats and the president have opposed continuing funding of the military. Correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, That's actually true. Uh, The last shutdown, which was during the Trump administration, uh, when I came in in 2019, it was over over the course of uh, about six weeks, uh, they had partial funding measures passed so that you did see sections of the government funded. And we would love to be able to pass those measures that fund our soldiers and fund our our, uh, veterans care and things like that. In fact, the House has passed funding bills for 70% of the government so far. The Senate hasn't passed anything. But uh, what we get is a White House that wants to maximize the political impact of the shutdown. So you're going to see a lot of hue and cry from this White House, but they're the ones causing the shutdown. They're the ones uh, maximizing the political pain while we try and find solutions here in the House. Unbelievable. That's Congressman Ben Klein representing Virginia's 6th Congressional District. Back in a moment. Thanks, Ben. Uh, You're listening to First Amendment Friday on the Lars Larson Show and the Radio Northwest Network. You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show. something on the Lars Larson Show? Check out posted interviews and podcasts at LarsLarson.com. You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. As I mentioned, Elon Musk, who is a tech guy, is worried that AI, artificial intelligence, is moving ahead too quickly. But uh, would things be made even worse if the U.S. government gets involved in it? I've got my own opinions on that. But I thought we'd bring on Will Reinhardt, who's a senior research fellow at the Center for Growth and Opportunity. Well, good to have you back. Yeah, thanks for having me, Lars. So tell me this, uh, people in government, including our legislative body, which is filled with people like uh, uh, you used to have Hillary Clinton in there who thought you wiped computer servers like with a cloth. These people are going to somehow regulate artificial intelligence better than the folks in the industry. Is this going to work out well? I'm not convinced of that at all. I mean, I mean, you know, 
to step back on this for just one moment, right? There's uh, there's a lot that's happening in tech, and and what I find is really interesting is that there has been conversations and arguments about uh, kind of a broad uh, platform for privacy regulation, right? Of of general privacy protections, general privacy regulation. And those things aren't even agreed upon, and it's largely because of uh, Democrats in the Senate who are stopping it. But it's like we can't even agree upon that. You know, Congress can't even agree upon um, upon the the broad protections and broad um, privacy protections. So how are we gonna how are we gonna have even more with AI? I just I just don't see it happening. Well, and frankly, Will, uh, I'm in some ways more concerned about safeguarding my privacy against the government than with the government's assistance. I mean, Musk, the guy who just over this last week, and I think is the first time he said it, said the U.S. government had relatively unfettered access to uh, what we thought were private direct messages sent over Twitter. And and we never would have known that under the previous management of Twitter. Now we know it, or at least he says that's what was happening. So if the government itself is invading our privacy, how in the world is an actor like that going to act in my best interest in protecting my privacy against every, everyone else? It sounds like it'll just give the government more access than ever. Yeah, and, and so we know what's happening generally, or at least we kind of have a sense of what's happening with Twitter. What's happening with Facebook? What's happening with YouTube? What's happening with TikTok? I mean, the, there's a lot of other big players, and and honestly, Twitter is kind of the smallest one of the bunch. It's, I mean, it, you know, I'm I'm on it, and I use it. I know, I know you use it, but like, you know, there's a lot of people who aren't on there very often, and so. Nope. Those other platforms are far, far more important for the amount of content that actually goes through. And, and what happens on a day-to-day basis is th- th- those things are just much more like integrated in people's lives. Yeah, so how do we get – look, I do have a concern about AI. I can see the promise that it can do amazing stuff. I read last week that they've got some AI technology, and this is sort, sort of clearly at the front end of a lot of this, that can look at, say, uh, X-rays or other kinds of measurements done of people and spot lung cancer that, are, that a really good human radi- radiologist would not be able to see. You say, okay, that's great. So we spot lung cancer early. We save people's lives. That's great. The problem is, like almost everything else, my chainsaw can be used for good things, my chainsaw in the wrong kind of movie could be used for some really bad things as well. And I think AI works the same way. How do we get the good stuff without the bad stuff? And aren't we a little bit genie already out of the bottle right now? I don't think that the genie's out of the bottle on this one. I mean, what we're, what we're seeing, at least with this new generation of AI tech, is really, it, I think it's pretty narrow, or at least it is, it's currently pretty narrow, right? We're, we're only seeing it in a very specific set of applications. It's you know, largely in content creation, so, you know, writing and research and editing. And then it's also, it seems to be pretty important for uh, picture development and, you know, creating movies and videos. Now, the bigger question, which is very clearly on the horizon, is where can this sort of technology, where can this model of technology be applied elsewhere? And I think that's where you know, drug development is really fascinating. That's where, um, you know, that's where a whole bunch of other, you know, as, as you mentioned, uh, radiology is, I think, a very fascinating space. But this is going to happen slowly. And, and I'm actually, you know, for all of the problems of the legal system and regulation and government, these things aren't going to easily be adapted. They're not going to just come into the market. They're not going to just come into everyone's homes because, there's going to be legal, you know, there's going to have to be, uh, you know, a, a lawyer checking off on, on the use of these if you're working for a big company. There's compliance. So as, as much as, you know, you rail about uh, regulatory issues, and I do too, that's a big 
you know, that that's a big bottleneck. That's a big thing that's going to be effectively stopping just massive adoption of these technologies. Well, see, and Will, what I worry about is the regulations all affect the people who actually follow the rules, kind of like gun control. You know, the gun control laws control law-abiding people, and regulations on AI are likely to affect the behavior and, and whatever the, the legitimate users of it are going to do. But the illegitimate users of it, you know, the ones who want to sample some of Will Reinhardt's voice and then call and, and, and commit a fraud using what appears to be your voice speaking to your bank saying, I'd like to transfer, you know, $10,000 to Lars Larson's bank account. And they say, okay, Mr. Reinhardt, we'll get right on that. You know, that, that, that kind of stuff. And there, and I'm already hearing about scams that are being run where people use somebody else's voice to be able to fool somebody into giving this up. That's going on right now. That's the non-law-abiding side of things. Um, so how do we rein in some of this uh, in, a, in a way that keeps people from being cheated but still gets the good aspects of AI? You, you've hit on exactly the thing that I've been that I've been talking about with AI, which is cybersecurity. I think cybersecurity is a very near-term threat. Um, it, it's related to effectively all of the problem. It, it really is the the near-term problem that we see with with this technology, and you know that's going to be in a whole. The, the way that to adapt to it is it's going to be varied. You know, banks are going to have to create new processes. Uh, platforms and credit cards are going to have to create new things. I mean, we've, we're even seeing this now that there is, you know, these these um, uh, you know these these SWAT teams that are you know that are kind of deployed illegally online, right? They, they oh, somebody swatting. calls up the, yep. the fire and says, "Hey, that there's a there's a problem that's going," or the you know the police officers and they say, "Hey, that there's a you know a bomb here, or there's something that's going on here." So we're seeing these new technologies being deployed nefariously and that that the the slow adaption to that is the unfortunate thing that we're going to have to deal with in the next 10 to 15 years i guess maybe we need to find some of the bad guys and hire them to be the white hats instead of the black hats if we can do it that way i don't you know because i know we did we saw that done in computers early on saying okay we catch somebody we'll sentence you to, to work for a tech company for a few years showing them how to block the the kinds of things that you used to do but i don't know if there's a better way to make it happen I, I do think, and, and maybe AI could be very useful in spotting the frauds, you know, because the AI might be able to add several factors together and say, oh, this sounds like a fraud artist instead, and kick the decision up to a human being and say, I don't think you should do business with this person, but I don't know if we're ever going to get to that point. That's real Will Reinhardt, who is a senior research fellow at the Center for Growth and Opportunity. Will, it's a pleasure to have you on the program. If you want to jump into what we call the best conversation in talk journalism, it's right here every day at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at Lars. LarsLarson.com. You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show. The Lars Larson Show.